Cool. It is cool. Okay, so you say something, Todd. Just count backwards from 10 in a normal voice. 10, 9, 8. Perfect. Mara? A, B, C, D, E, F, D. Keep going. H, I, J, Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. Hello everyone, this is Todd Fredrickson, an Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and this is an episode of Rotations. Uh, it's good to start this off, and Mara Lyondecker's our host today, and she's going to introduce us to our guest. Hi, everyone. I'm Mara Lyondecker. I'm a second-year medical student here at OUHCOM. Um, we have today Dr. Jamrose with us. He's going to tell us about his life as a physician working at a state behavioral health clinic. So, Dr. Jamrose, to start off, what's a, could you just tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I was a non-traditional student. Um, I actually started out life as a high school band director. So I had a music scholarship and I went to Concord College, which is now Concord University. And that's how I ended up in rural West Virginia. As I like to say, West by God, West by God, Virginia. And um, uh, basically I became a high school band director. I taught in Giles County, Virginia. And I just realized during my third year of teaching, it wasn't for me. And one of the things I did during undergrad was I was a volunteer firefighter and I became an emergency medical technician. So I left my career as a teacher and went back to school to become a paramedic. And I did that for 10 years in Princeton, West Virginia. And I loved that job. I loved being a paramedic more than anything else. I made some of the best friends I ever had. It was a camaraderie. I didn't think I'd get anywhere else. And I, what I noticed that all my friends as they got older they hurt and they had back pain and I, you know, no one took care of themselves. They smoked a lot of cigarettes. They were, and these are just such great people. Like I miss my friends there. And, um, I was sitting there and I hurt my back on a call and all of a sudden here I was, I wasn't working for two weeks and I sat there and I said, I need to do something as much as I could be a paramedic the rest of my life. I wasn't making much money. We were very underpaid and they, they still are. Paramedics are so underpaid and they're put in such stressful situations um, all the time. And I said, I need to do something. And I thought about different routes. I knew I was going back to school. I thought about going to nursing school, becoming a nurse practitioner, maybe a PA. And I had a great medical director at the, at the squad. His name is Rodney Cox. As a matter of fact, he's an ER physician and a DO um, in a uh, I don't know where he's at now, but last I knew he was working in Blacksburg, Virginia. And he said, Todd, you just you just need to go to med school. And I was like, well, why is that? And he's like, you know, you're smart. You can do it. You know, you're a leader. You do these things. It's just what you need to do. And I was like, well, money. And I started talking about all those things. And he always had an argument for why not. And I decided, okay, I'll, I'll just go back to school. And I started off with a microbiology test class. And the part I, I miss out that I skipped is, is, when I had that back injury, I was off uh, for two weeks from work and I wasn't getting better. Um, didn't matter what pain meds they gave me, what uh, muscle relaxers they gave me. 
And my boss, the CEO of the squad, set me up with his chiropractor. And I got off the table and I was ready to go back to work. I had been suffering for two weeks in mobile. And in a matter of one, two hour session with this guy, I was ready to go back to work. And so when I decided I was going to be a physician, I decided that I wanted to be able to do everything to help my patients. And West Virginia, there, I felt like there were a lot more osteopathic physicians than there were MDs. And I decided the only route for me was to be an osteopathic physician because I wanted to be able to provide all the care I could, could for my patients because I think about if I would have had a DOC me when I first hurt my back in the ER mm-hmm. that was willing to do that to me, I would have been back to work in mm-hmm. a day or two, maybe. It's something real fast, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've only had minor back problems ever since. And, you know, um, so that's, that's how I ended up going to uh, med school. And I went to West Virginia, of course, um, and I got in... Real quick, I was accepted like end of September, October when I applied. And uh, the rest is there. That's how I ended up in med school. So you mentioned how you really liked being a paramedic. What made you decide to go into psychiatry? Well, um, you know, when I went to med school, I was determined that I thought for sure I was going to do family med ER. Like I was like, I want to do family med ER. And I thought about nothing else but those two things, like combined residency. I wanted the flexibility of working in the ER, but I wanted to be able, if that isn't what I wanted, I wanted to be able to do family med. And all of a sudden in March of my third year, by the way, I already had all my rotations set up for auditions at different hospitals, right? For like, family so medicine. For family medicine. Nice, yeah. And even at that point, <laughs> during my third year, I enjoyed my geriatrics rotation so much, I didn't know if I wanted to do family med ER or family med geriatrics because I had such great experiences in, during my rotations at a VA in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Yeah, it's a nice, long, nice VA. Yeah, yeah, and then long-term care floor, I was doing OMM on patients every day in their hospice units and on the geriatric floor. And I was like, I am so good at this. I love this. I love coming to work every day. But then all of a sudden I'm on the psychiatry rotation. It was uh, in Winchester, Virginia at their hospital. And it was the only rotation that I worked weekends and stayed late. And I loved every rotation I did in med school. All of them. Well, except for surgery. But that's another story. (laughs) I loved all my rotations. But I was always looking forward to the end of the day, going home, seeing family, doing things, right? Studying. And with psychiatry, I didn't care if I went home. I didn't care if I went home and saw my girlfriend. Didn't care. (laughs) Like, seriously, like, I liked that more than anything I wanted. And then all of a sudden I was like, my girlfriend at the time I was dating was looking at me and she's like, Todd, like, why why don't you look at that? And it was March of my third year. I was like, I don't know if I can get rotations, whatever. But she was right. And, you know, and I, I started pursuing psychiatry. And, uh, I, that was about my second week into March. I told the psychiatrist I was with, which didn't change anything. They were willing to write me letters. And I looked at osteopathic residencies because I'm a very proud osteopath. I was like, the only thing I want to do is an osteopathic residency. And I don't know why I thought that time hindsight 2020 really, you know, and, um, I applied to all the osteopathic residencies there were, I still went to my family med ones too, actually. I went to my uh, interviews there because I was like, well, what if I'm making a mistake? And 
I ended up in Chillicothe, Ohio, and uh, William Resch, who's a DO, and uh, he works for Ohio Health now, and uh, I just believed in him. I knew he could make me a good psychiatrist. Hmm. And Chillicothe, Ohio, it was it was a rural environment, so mm-hmm. it felt like it felt like West by God. And you know what? It everything just felt right, and here I am now. When you were at Chillicothe, did you do any work at the prison? Yeah, I spent uh, two months at the prison. Um, I I know the softball. I get them confused. Um, this the one that's the one that's the state, not the one with death row, but the one yeah with the state. Yeah, I spent uh, I spent two months there in my fourth year. That's a big facility. Mm-hmm. Huge, and you know what? Intimidating. You're walking around, and you know the the inmates are just out and about, and it's just it's 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 a it's a different experience. I never felt unsafe. But the first time you see it and you experience it, it's, it is something else. And it is. It's so huge. The place is so big. The buildings are all so spread apart. Yeah. So what are some of the ways? I know, at least for me, I've always thought, I want to go into psychiatry, but how could I use my OMM experience? So what are the, some, of, some of the ways that you use um, manipulation techniques to treat your patients? So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of different um opinions on omm and psychiatry and i've done a couple lectures on it but i use omm to treat a lot of the comorbidities that go along with mental illness um you know a lot of patients with mental illness come in with a lot of chronic pain um they don't take care of themselves when they come in the hospital you know they have a lot of muscle strains i have a patient now that i work on weekly on his shoulders and he came in thinking he needed surgery now his pain is under control and he doesn't need surgery. Wow. He's using them. I mean, he has some weakness and you can see the dysfunction in his shoulder still. But, you know, we've, we're at a point where it's like, yeah, I don't need surgery. I'm good. Like how much, how great is that when you can avoid surgery? You mm-hmm. know, um, I know that, uh, I, we get patients all the time with back pain. It lowers our peer in medications. I go up, treat their back pain. And one of the things we're going to start doing now, especially, is try to get our constipated patients in. Because a lot of our medications, or side effects are constipation. And um, one of the things we're going to start doing is more OMM for, for bowel stuff. So we can try to lower a lot of the bowel regimens we have on our patients on, on these medications. That's really cool. That's really interesting, actually. Um, and it's interesting that um, you treat some of the things that come with their conditions um and so then they don't have to be on more medications than they're already on so that's a good way to kind of eliminate some of those things and in residency i did a lot of moonlighting one of the things i did was uh do a dual diagnosis clinic out of community mental health in chillicothe and i realized real quick i had to get my skills back because you have all these patients who have opiate use disorder and you're giving them um Mm -hmm. suboxone or you're giving them vivitrol and they, and the thing we forget, and that upsets me when we lose sight of it, is that people with addiction issues, when they ask for pain meds, we don't validate their pain. You know, a lot of times we sit there and go, oh, they're drug seeking, whatever it is, and they're not. They have real pain, and we're forgetting how much they, where they, how they got there, right, with the tolerance, and mm-hmm. they have an increased upregulation in pain receptors, and we're forgetting that they're more sensitive to pain, and part of opiate withdrawal and post-acute withdrawal is pain, and, you know, I realized real quick that I was able to help them with OMM in my clinic, 
And you know, like they, if they're able to tolerate their pain, how much easier is it to stay sober? Mm-hmm. And something as easy as five minutes, oh, let me throw on the table here and let me uh, work on your knee with a little myofascial release. And they got up feeling better. Like, how do we not know that that didn't stop a relapse that night because they weren't able to tolerate that pain? Mm-hmm. It probably also helps them to comply a little bit better uh, when the OMM techniques are effective. Um, and then they're like, oh, okay, now my pain is gone. I can, you know, do all these other things that yeah. I wasn't able to do before. And it's one of those things I kind of talk about. You say complies. I like, I like to throw the term adherence out mm-hmm. is because it's a partnership. And being able to work OMM into a treatment plan with patients, you know, they aren't going to like just comply with it to go along with whatever. I'm like, oh, I have to do my groups to get my medication or I need when they're participating in OMM, they're a bigger part of their treatment plan and they're a bigger part of their their recovery. That's so true. Do you feel as though the patients respond well to OMM in general? They do. You know, um, we're getting ready to start some more regular OMM at the hospital. And I, I had to send out an email explaining to staff, like what kind of patients are appropriate for that? And the big one is a, a lot of people are scared of doing OMM on patients with psychiatric illness. And, you know, with good, not scared is the wrong word, that, but they have a good reason to be hesitant because, you know, you have to have a patient that's not going to misinterpret therapeutic touch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, patients with just some severe delusions or really severe hallucinations, things like that, is you've got to make sure the patients you pick are not going to misinterpret what you're doing to them. You know, right. so mm-hmm. most of my OMM is is on more of our chronic patients in the in the state hospital where I work. I work for Appalachian Health Care State Hospital here in Athens is we have a lot of patients there that are there for a long period of time for different reasons. And it's the patients that are there longer and that are stable are the ones that, you know, we're we're we'll pull through into the OMM because, we you know, we want to make sure they don't misinterpret Right. Interpret treatment. Well, and it raises the, the the importance of educating staff. If they're not used to DOs, uh, and even though, because typically the ni- one of the other nice things about ABH is that you're paired with the staff member when you're seeing patients. And so there's automatically a chaperone in almost all cases, right? right. But making sure those chaperones know what's appropriate when it comes to OMM, that's going to be a bit of a challenge too. And that's one of the great things about working in Athens Um you know, in West Virginia, I felt like I knew what osteop- osteopathic physicians were, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know, but they were familiar. Like, I didn't look as a DO as just a physician. I never understood what the difference between a DO and an MD was, but because it's rural West Virginia, DOs were everywhere, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. where I'm at. Then all of a sudden, I go to med school. I'm going, oh, wow, you know, and I start shattering before I go to med school, and I start learning more. And as I advance through medical school and go to different areas and move around is... I find out a lot of people don't understand what osteopathy is. And the one great thing about ABH is all of our medical physicians there that work during the day are DOs. Um, Two other psychiatrists besides me are DOs. And, you know, staff is pretty aware of OMM because we have have med students in there all the time. And um, they are really excited. Like, it was so easy. Like, everyone's referring patients. Even the MDs are referring so many patients to my clinic. I was hoping just to get a few pa- a few patients started next week, and I don't even know what I'm going to do. Like, I've already got a list of, like, 30, and wow. I'm like, I can't serve all that. So it's like the need is there, and it's exciting because 
if this is successful, we can keep growing it. And so, the, so for people listening, um, J- Dr. Jambros knows that he, he he knows that I can I can be a, a sarcastic. So he so if you, this sounds mildly sarcastic. <laughs> this sounds mildly sarcastic. Don't take. I'm sure he will not be offended. So here's the tradition, Todd, that. Um, that most medicine guys like myself look at psychiatrists as people who don't want to be doctors, yeah. right? And what I find really ironic is you are doing something that we think is like stereotypically not what a psychiatrist wants to do. Like they want to sit in the classic Freudian position in a couch with someone behind them doing psychoanalysis and not even getting near them physically. And now you're doing, you're oh. completely flipping that whole thing and saying, no, I'm going to be a psychiatrist that actually touches patients. You're so right, because let me tell you, it's first off, <laughs> I, I hope that I'm wrong, but I'm the only psychiatrist I know that does manipulation. I hope that I'm wrong. I haven't met another one that does manipulation. What about the other DOs on staff? No, they, they do they, not. Are they going to do it? No, they are not. They're not. <laughs> Look, <laughs> can we be real? <laughs> yeah, we can be uh, real. Outside of, outside of OMM fellows, who knows the most, and OMM instructors, who knows the most OMM? Students. Yeah, the students. Second, and the end of their second year. Yeah, you bet. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And... Mm-hmm. DO residencies, when I applied, even though there's more now, there were only 13 osteopathic psychiatry residencies in the nation when I applied, and that wow. was wow. six years ago. So you got to understand, all these osteopathic docs, they went to allopathic residencies. You don't use it, you lose it. And all of them are going to sit there, and they're going to tell you how OMM is great, and they agree with all that. They went to DO school. Mm-hmm. But they haven't used it. They're not going to, like, we, we, yeah, they're not going to do it. They're not. And, you know, would you want them to, you know, without them doing refreshers and stuff like that? And they're not comfortable. Well, it's interesting that in a couple of years, you may be having in-services on how to reintroduce OMM skills into your psychiatric practice. Yeah. Like crawl, walk, run. It'd be kind of curious, wouldn't it, to be able to do that and have them say, well, we could start with some basic soft tissue techniques and you won't hurt anybody and it'll be therapeutic and see what your results are. Yeah. It'd be kind of curious, wouldn't it? As a matter of fact, one of the physicians goes, I go... Because uh, we were doing credentialing for it, and he's like, "Nope." He goes, "I'm not going to do it. If you ever wanted, if you ever want to practice, let me know." Like he was, he's all about the therapy, but he wasn't about about doing it, hmm. you know? Right. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I hope I'm wrong, but even in my own osteopathic residency, some OMM was taught, of course. But yeah, and I just want to comment. You were talking about how people see psychiatrists don't want to touch do. And I will tell you what, if you want to get me rolling, it's when people say that. I remember when I was in med school and I made the decision to do psychiatry. And I was so happy I made that. When I decided that's what I was going to do, I knew I found my calling. I knew I found, because I was so happy doing it. And patients got me. They got my sense of humor. I'm also very sarcastic, direct, <laughs> blunt. I'm, I'm just full of crap a lot of the time. I joke with people. I joke with patients. And I'll tell you what, the psychiatric patients I get listen to me better than any anyone else when I'm, you know, than the diabetic patient I tell, don't go to the golden corral and eat five pounds of mashed potatoes. I can get patients to get on board with their treatment planning. And I remember I made that choice and all my friends were like, oh, you're hanging up the stethoscope. What? And that just, <laughs> when I said I was going to psychiatry, oh, you're hanging up the stethoscope. And oh I'm like, goodness. I didn't see it coming. I did not see it coming. It's funny that you guys are talking about this. I went to the doctor the other day, and the lady who drew my blood, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm in med school. And I was like, I'm not going to watch you. Just do whatever you need to do. And she's like, oh, you want to be a psychiatrist, don't you? And I was like, 
what? <laughs> yes, I do, but where did that come from? So you there really been a, is. You have had a unique exposure because what Jambrose and I are talking about is very real. Like, you go to most medical institutions, you have a psychiatric admission. They don't do the HMP. They don't want anything part of it. Yeah. They want to come in and knock knock out some antipsychotics, and you've done all this HMP work. And there is this dichotomy within medicine, because mm-hmm. I consider psychiatrists still physicians, right? But they're, like, out there and not... The typical psychiatrist is not a person very comfortable with doing medicine in the sense of outside the realm of psychiatry. And so that that's a different exposure you've had to be around psychiatrists say, no, we're doctors too, oh, no, and we're going to take care of patients. But let me just comment on that, <laughs> yeah. is that that's being a specialist a lot of the time. So even that's true when, too. You look, when you look at other specialties that just focus on things, they start getting uncomfortable with something even as simple as antibiotics like if you're doing chemotherapy all day and then all of a sudden oh i gotta prescribe leviquin mm-hmm. you know you don't think they're looking that up but they'll calculate out they'll calculate a chemotherapy drug that we couldn't we'd spend five hours trying to figure out how to do and psychiatry the same way i can sit here and go through clauseril titrations with you all day long and you would spend all this time on the rent like but here I am looking up like, oh, what's the dose of ibuprofen? I'm exaggerating. But, you know, like something that right. every, you know what I mean? Like you get very focused. No, I think what you, you have do. a really good point because it is true. I have specialists that don't want to treat sinusitis. It's funny, though. How did it get to be where we don't seem to think that that's an issue? But we like to razz the psychiatrist. I wonder if it's I wonder because it is real. It really is like you like I guess it's true. It's like I, I, guess, I won't dime the individual out, but some individual was very uncomfortable with doing certain things. And and I was like, that's like a basic like first year medical skill. Like and yet and then just kind of but on the psychiatry side. It's kind of an enduring stereotype, and it's true. I guess the regular specialists do the same thing, but yes, psychiatrists yeah. take the heat for it. I guess, and uh, we do. And I, you know, one of the things I do do in my in uh, with my caseload when I had a caseload is I managed all the diabetes care unless it got too complicated. Yeah, because you know, metabolic syndrome is something that goes along real strong, and I'm I'm prescribing these medications. You know what I should be confident doing? Managing what happens when it comes along. So, like, I have patients that if they develop diabetes on my watch, is um, I start treating them, I get them early, and I've had huge success because I'm on top of it. And the other two medical docs that are there love it. They just, they just awesome. love that I roll with that. And I'm like, well, i got to be prepared for what I need to do. And that's also why I continue to do on-duty work is I'm a specialist, and I'm, I'm, I feel I'm very good at my psychopharm, and I love it. Like, I think I like psycho farm better than star wars and i didn't think i'd ever say that in my life and but you know um i do on duty work because i need to stay competent in medicine and if you don't do it you lose it and that's Mm -hmm. all things so i do on duty work at night i still handle all that stuff and um you know when you look at certain sections of psychiatry it's very heavy medicine like consult liaison psychiatry is a huge thing that's when the psychiatrists go to the medical floors most of Consolidators and psychiatrists go on the medical floors and fixing a delirium another doc has done with different medications and you know that takes a lot of medical knowledge to see that right mm-hmm. example we had a case yesterday on paper you brought to me for clearance and i was looking at the meds and i was like this is a medical issue look at these meds and yeah. right off the bat i saw certain meds and go this is a medical problem he needs this care instead and they were like they were saying it was a psychiatric patient 
I think that's so interesting that you said it's all about learning and life of learning. And I know for me, I'm about to start studying for my boards exam and I've gone back to a couple of things from first year and I'm like, oh gosh, I don't remember any of this. So it's so true that if you don't use that knowledge and even with the OMM, if you're not practicing it, you're not going to get any better at it. So yeah. I think that's really important. Um, and I think we're going to go ahead and take a break right now. Nah, we now. got five more minutes. Five more minutes? Yeah. Okay. I'm watching the clock. Oh. I'm a clock watcher. <laughs> oh, okay. That's what a line producer does. We watch the clock. <laughs> He's on it. He's ready. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so could you tell us a little bit about what your typical day would look like? So it's something I was talking about before I came in. I'm in a very interesting time in my career because I'm in my finishing up my third week as the um, chief clinical officer, which is medical uh, medical director duties. And wow. over this past two months, I've been transitioning from a 100% practice-oriented work job to being an administrator. And you know what? I don't know what my day consists of. This week has been great because this is the first week I feel like I know where I'm going and I know what I'm doing. I don't really feel like I know what I'm doing, but... <laughs> Um, like, I think that's going to take months. Like, honestly, like they don't prepare you in med school for this. And I even did a fellowship, um, in community and public psychiatry to help prepare for this. And, you know, and I'm glad I did it like more than ever, but yeah, being an administrator, when we're trained medical stuff, I've got a lot to learn, but a typical day. And I'll just say starting out as a practicing psychiatrist is I just come in in the morning. I look at what happened overnight and then because I, I choose to be an inpatient doc, I just go see patients. You know, if I have a new admit, I generally tend to see them first. Um, patients who haven't been there long, I see them daily. And then I go around and see who needs to be seen for what. And I just spend time sitting with patients, um, doing some behavioral skills with them. We get a lot of patients. My, my favorite patients to work with in general, I, I actually, I like them all, but I particularly like... Uh, my patients who have schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, and I particularly like uh, my patients who have borderline personality disorder. And I know that you know you're looking at me, and uh, <laughs> that's that's true, right? That's two like, as you. Those are scary. And that is, um, and I remember in residency, I was very intimidated by treating people with borderline personality disorder because it's such emotional dysregulation, and you don't know what you're going to get when you walk in the room. So. Like I said, William Rush was my program director. He was just so supportive of anything I wanted to do. Another reason I enjoyed doing an osteopathic residency is like, what do you want to do? I'll help figure out how you can do that. And he helped me and he helped out of his own pocket pay for me to go take class in dialectal behavioral therapy. And now I spend all this time doing um, a lot of DBT skills with patients. But on top of it, my personality is just very direct and very sarcastic. And patients with borderline personality disorder, 99% of the time, just they may, they, they, they can start out mad at me, but you can ask anyone in the hospital, they end up loving me. Because no matter what happens, when they walk in the room with me, they can predict what I'm going to say. They know what I'm going to say, whether they like it or not. And they, the consistency I give them, and then I just work on radical acceptance with them. I work on distraction techniques with them. I mean, I just discharged a patient that's been in the hospital pretty much all summer with, like, very serious suicide attempts. And, like, we discharged yesterday, and I'm just so excited and optimistic for, 
you know, and I get patients like that and everyone goes, oh, that's going to be Jammer's patient because I just, I just love even getting them and sitting with them and I spend extra time with them and I'll do certain things. I just introduce them slow to stimuli because people forget that when you're in a place like a psychiatric hospital, it's very controlled mm-hmm. and they get stable there. And when you're so emotionally dysregulated, you just turn them loose back in whatever apartment they're in, right? And, you know, a lot of times, most of the time, they're lower socioeconomic. What are we turning them back loose into? What kind of chaotic environment are we just turning them out loose to? And what kind of supports do we give them? So I do this gradual moving out so that they can handle that gradual as we go. So I'll advance them through a levels system at the hospital, which is too much to get into. But a lot of it will end up before they leave. Is like I'll take them out of the hospital. And we'll just go as simple as somewhere simple as, say, a Chinese buffet at the mall. Right. And I learn more about my patients when I do that than any time I spend in the hospital. I remember uh, I took all my patients with appropriate levels last. I think it was like, yeah, it was last December out and I took them all to the Chinese buffet and I, I paid for them to go. And the reason I did the Chinese buffet is it's easy. Right. Like people right. can go get whatever they want. I don't have time. There's no decision making. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when I would only take one or two at a time, I took a couple staff with me. And I learned so much about one of my patients, he couldn't handle just being around all the people. When he just went out with me and another patient, he was always fine, always fine. The minute I had eight people and like three staff, he was done. Hmm. He crammed like three full plates of food in less than 10 minutes. He's sweating. He's like, Jamrose, Jamrose, I want to go to the van. Let me go to the van. No, sit down, like, gotta wait for people to finish. You know, right. I'm, like, I'm going to give this guy the keys to the state van and go oh, hang. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but all of a sudden I realized why our discharge solutions weren't working for him, right? Yeah, he's scared why of those, Like, you know, he does well with me. He does well with me and another person he knows. It doesn't matter that he knew all those other people. You really saw it was that social anxiety, like... He does not handle all his people. That's why he doesn't. He what he wasn't going to groups, you know. And we were able to focus more one-on-one therapy. We got him into an apartment with like one roommate because it isn't that he wanted to be left alone. Right. It was just the. That's quiet. it. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. he has been, he has been out for a good amount of time, and he was hospitalized for I think four years. Wow. Wow. You know, so. That's amazing. You know, it's just doing those things to help help get it to make sure they're going to be okay and make sure you have the right discharge solution for them when they leave. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. It's not just about the medications. There's so much more to making sure that they're healthy and able to go out on their own. So that's a pretty hopeful thing to end the first segment on. Mm -hmm. We good? Yeah. Yeah. You want to, you want to do a second segment? Sure. That's awesome. Mari, you got anything else before we go to the second segment? I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Okay. Well, listen, guys, we're going we're gonna to end this first segment with Dr. Jambros, and then we'll be back uh, with a second segment at, uh, at some point in the future. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks, hosted by Todd Fredericks, and edited by Todd Fredericks. 
Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian, Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi, and at Rotations Podcast, or by visiting MediaMedicine.com slash Rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, for me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sensitive feelings, so embrace your pain and hate.